how is Pastor Coates not being a pastor going to help this COVID situation if the church can just meet without the pastor? You know, they don't need him to uh, delete to start the church. But when you hear this, when you see what's going on, I can't help but wonder if this is just a subtle way in which the government in Canada is just persecuting Christians. Since again, telling the pastor to not be a pastor doesn't solve really the problem. At this point in time, Pastor Coates is still in jail waiting trial in the coming days. It's not hard to see that the world's perspective and their attitude towards Christianity is slowly becoming more and more hostile. In fact, the Supreme Court here in the United States recently said that religious liberty is going to be the, the, the right that is going to be despised. It's not going to be something that's, that people are fond of, which means that eventually for us, it's going to be incredibly uncomfortable for us to be Christians in the fallen world. And like all of us, we hate discomfort. Sometimes the discomfort comes because of our own foolishness and other times our discomfort comes because it is done to us. We all hate discomfort. No matter how much we want to stay comfortable, there will be seasons in our lives and some are longer, some are shorter, that is going to be very uncomfortable. Suffering is uncomfortable. And we are reminded in scripture that the trial that leads us to suffering is just part of the normal human experience, especially in a fallen world. A few of us in the last several weeks have preached um, through the Psalms about suffering. And, um, and it seems as, as weeks and weeks go by, it does seem like it's, getting, it's going to be harder and harder for Christians. Persecutions for Christians can be quite possibly just one executive order away. Even in our suffering, though, we can still bring glory to God. Now, I wonder if that's something that you think about that you can suffer well for the glory of God? How can you suffer in such a way that actually gives God glory? We know from scripture, Jesus is our perfect. Jesus is known in Isaiah 52 and 53 as the suffering servant. And that, if, that, that his life is going to be very difficult, but yet he did so because it gave glory to God. The gospel gives glory to God because he had to suffer. First Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, later on in his life, after everything, writes this. First Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live righteously. For by his wounds, you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardians of your soul. First Peter 3, verse 14, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, it with gentleness and reverence. Later on, verse 17, for it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing right rather what is right rather than doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once and for all, 
that just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. One more, the end of 1 Peter chapter 4, after you have suffered for a little while, while the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. The Old Testament saints, the New Testament saints, all understood that suffering is, the, is part of this life. Part of our union with Jesus Christ is that we share with him in our suffering. So today I'm gonna to ask this question for us and we're gonna try to answer as we look through this text. How can we suffer in a land where the laws make it hard for us to be a Christian? How can we survive in a place like this? How can we suffer well? How can we endure executive orders that goes against the faith? What are we supposed to do when things get hard for us as a Christian? Persecution is uncomfortable. If we want to glorify God in the midst of persecution, if we want to stay faithful to the Lord while being persecuted. We need to give God's glory. We need to have God's glory in our mind. But how, how can we do that? Well, first, in order to do this, you, depend, you need to depend on the God for the glory of God. We need to depend on God for the glory of God. Let's look at the subscript in the beginning here. For the choir director said to Al-Tasheth, a, Mel, a, a Malkatam of David, when he fled from Saul in the cave. This, ver, this little intro here gives us a context that David was running from Saul. Uh, so David was in a cave at one point, and much like Psalm 56, when I preached two weeks ago, I don't think David had a flashlight and some notebook. He was just sitting there writing this in the cave, but rather he has survived it and is reflecting back at how, what he felt back when he was running or hiding in that cave. Uh, I don't know about you, but being in the cave is very uncomfortable. Um, I just walked through caves sometimes when, feel, when I was younger and it was weird. You see bats and things hanging from the ceiling. It's very uncomfortable to be in a cave and not, not only the, the physical discomfort but there's also the internal discomfort knowing that if someone was to rush in that cave there's nowhere you can go this isn't some sort of child's play like hide and seek and david is a marked man it's like one of those old western posters when they said wanted dead or alive you know what i'm talking about but instead the the live part is kind of crossed out it's just as dead uh, if david is found he would be killed and this is the, if you find him, you need to kill him situation. You know, this is an order from the king at the time. King Saul was jealous of David's success and he hated him for it. And what is surprising is actually how uh, David responds when he has a chance to end it all. David had an opportunity to strike down Saul in 1 Samuel 24. Verse 16 to 22 reads this, when David had, uh, or actually even before that, uh, David had an opportunity, he had even had friends to say, hey, go and, and David, Saul's right there, end his life, but he decides not to. In First Samuel 24, 16 said, but when David had finished speaking these words, meaning that he, 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 he I guess we can go up uh, from verse 12, may the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. As Proverbs the ancient said, out of the wicked comes forth the wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dog, a single flea? The Lord therefore be judge and decide between you and me 
and may he see and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. And David had finished speaking these words to Saul. Saul said, is, is this your voice, David, my son? Then Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have dealt well with me while I have dealt wickedly with you. You have declared today that you have done good to me, that the Lord delivered me into your hands, yet you did not kill me. For a man finds his enemy, will he not let him go away safely? May the Lord therefore reward you with good in return for what you have done to me this day. Now behold, I know that you will surely be king and that this kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. So now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me, that you will not destroy my name for my father's household. David swore to Saul and Saul went to his home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. It's interesting because in this text right before this, David seems to repent. You know, he just cut off part of, of Saul's uh, robe or cape, whatever you want to call it. Um, and he feels bad about it. He was sensitive towards these things. He had an opportunity to end uh, Saul, but he chose not to. This is, um, this is a remarkable amount of, of trust in the Lord that he has. He says that he's going, that it's let the Lord decide between him and Saul. Now, I wonder if you and I were given the opportunity like David, will we take it? If you saw those that want to end your life, do you find yourself wanting to end your suffering by putting an end to their life? Would you be tempted to take a life of those that want to take your life? This was David's dilemma, but instead of going off of his fleshly impulse, which I trust, I think most of us, if we were in the, in the same opportunity, will at least be tempted to do so, he chose to not strike him and trust in God's timing. In fact, David goes beyond that. He again, he asked for forgiveness. He was so sensitive to his own sin that he had a great, had a, such a great trust in God that he, that he saw that his desire alone was sinful and dishonoring to the Lord. What this should tell us about David and for us is that faithfulness to the Lord can sometimes feel unfair. David is known to be a man after God's own heart because he sought to honor God, but it was not easy to do so. He was in a cave with Saul and had the opportunity to make things easy for himself in his own life, but he chose to honor God more than comfort. David's ultimate trust is, God, is that God will deal with Saul according to God's timing. David's sole, sole desire is devotion, is solely devoted to God. In time of persecution, we must remember that persecution from an earthly perspective isn't always going to be fair. Yet in light of what, in light of this, what a believer should do is to go to God who will deal perfect justice to those who hate him and hate his people. And yet we go to him, we depend on him for protection. It's easy and very tempting to want to take out our anger and frustrations on others, thinking that if those group of people will just stop bothering us and pestering us and saying lies about us, then life will be perfect. And perhaps you might not want to kill someone physically, um, but, you've, but, but you may want to have, but you may in your heart desire to speak negatively against someone on maybe things like social media or other forums. Sometimes Christian can be obsessed of wanting to have a comfortable lifestyle that they're willing to forfeit their testimony in order to do so. Jesus tells us that calling a person a fool is enough to be thrown into hell. And our comfort cannot be fighting, our comfort cannot be in fighting back at all, but to lean and depend on the Lord. In times of great turmoil and struggle, our soul must find refuge 
in the Lord. Look at verse one, be gracious to me, O God, be gracious to me for my soul takes refuge in you and in the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge. You know, it's the beginning is be gracious. This is an appeal for God to deal favorably to him. There's acknowledgement that any faith from God is undeserved. David understands that anything that God does in his life is, is divine favor. It's something he does not deserve. Do you cry to God for dependence in the same way? Sometimes in our prayers, we, we are desperate and we almost talk as if you know, God needs to, answer in, needs to answer to us, that God needs to bow down to us and do what we want. There's a lack of reverence and understand that we are the creature and he is God. It isn't that God doesn't want us to go to him, but sometimes I know that for myself, that my cries to him are just glorified temper tantrums. We must remember that as we pray to God, we're asking God to answer us according to his grace. We are under his mercy and we can't expect God to treat us like we are owed something. Entitlement is a fruit of pride. Our pleads to God must be humble because we are nothing but dust. Why should God care for us knowing that you know how wicked and sinful we really are. David understands this. He's sensitive to his own sin, which is why he's asking God for grace. This is a passionate and desperate plea that God will look upon him in his circumstance with favor. David is frantically looking to God and begs God to give him some relief during this time. He's desperately seeking God and he's seeking and beseeching God to grant him help in this situation. Notice he says, my soul take refuge in you. And the word here is this continuous dependency. Uh, he, there's a dependency that David has for the Lord or on the Lord for safety. In fact, the rest of the verse we'll cover is actually explain why he needs to go to the Lord for refuge. Notice at the end of verse one, it says, and in the shadow of your wings, I take refuge. For this, this word here, um, refuge is different tense in the sense like the early ones is ongoing this one is is in perfect tense and what does that mean it means that that he is someone that is that is known for his faith and his and, and trusting in the lord but he also does it continuously so it's both he's known by that he's always trusting in the lord the idea here is that he is constantly trusting in him right this is here in the shadow of your wing this is uh zoomorphism uh, or basically, basically like it's, it's supposed to be something about the Lord and uses an animal as a way to make us picture what it's like. And then it doesn't make sense for what does it mean to be in the wing, in the shadow of someone's wings? That sounds weird to us. But this word here is the same, is the idea of, of God's protective care. It's used in Deuteron Deuteronomy 32, verse 11, which tells about how God delivered Israel from Egypt, uh, from Egypt, from bondage in Egypt to a covenant relationship. It goes beyond simply just looking, but being secured in the Lord. Why does this matter? This means that David is characterized as someone that goes to the Lord for safety. Part of being faithful followers of Jesus Christ means that we trust God. We're by our trust, and we continue to trust in him uh, throughout our life. We, we hide ourselves in the Lord. And notice at the end of verse uh, 1, it says, until destruction passes away. Destruction is a picture, and um, it's, very, it's a very frightening picture. It's a, it's a description of engulfing ruin. It's a picture of some sort of storm that covers it. Uh, it's, it's this coming storm that's very destructive. 
Um, it's kind of like what's going on in the middle of the country with all the snow. That's the that's the image here. That it's it's you're just surrounded by it, and he and the and he doesn't know where else to go except to God. He knows that he can't find shelter anywhere else except under the wings of God. I would translate this on my own. I'll say it translates to all of the distractions or some sort of multitude because in the in the English here it says it uses single until destruction. But in the original, it's actually multiples in the plurals, meaning that it's multiple types of destructions. There are many destructions awaiting David, and he's waiting for the Lord to keep him until all of this pass. I remember last year, 2020, it seemed like every month it was just something crazy that we had to deal with, right? I mean, in the Bay, the sky turned red, and because of all the fires going on, then we were told that killer hornets are, are going to fly from some other part of the world and sting people and kill and they're like killing bees and then um and then even uh you know there's all these other global disasters going on and these things these type of global event things they're they're not like discriminatory in terms of like you know the, the, the killer horns wasn't thinking okay, i'm only gonna attack people in north america they just attack whatever and whoever um you know the fires they didn't decide like okay, the fire is only gonna be with these people it just it just affected it didn't think like it didn't have it doesn't have a conscience it's just it's just living in a fallen world and the catastrophe happens but there will come a time Christians are going to be singled out and they will wish that they would just deal with they would rather go through all the stuff that happened last year than to deal with the persecution because persecution is very precise it's very targeted it's, it's discriminatory it's focusing on people that believe and live a certain lifestyle it is under those moments in our life that we need to entrust ourselves to the Lord, that we need to hide under the wings of the Lord. If the world is against us and we have nowhere else to hide, we must take our refuge in the Lord. We keep trusting in the Lord until the destruction passes. Cling to him. Hide in the Lord's wing. Take cover in God's care. David continues and doesn't stop depending and hiding in the Lord until the very end. Verse two, I will cry to God most high, to God who accomplishes all things for me. This designation for God emphasizes God's power and majesty. God is lifted up above all his creation over all circumstances. He and he's in absolute control. He is sovereign. The Bible, the God of the Bible is the only God that is the, that deserves the highest praise and he is worthy of all worship. Not Allah, not Buddha, not the Mormon God, not the Pope, not Ra, or whatever false God that exists and that will exist down the line. There's only one most high, and that is the God of David, the God of Israel, and the God of the Bible. They're all the same. We believe in the one true God that's from the Bible. He's the only real God. This is our God. And do you cry to him as if he's a real God? Or do you find yourself going to other things that give you comfort? You know, some of us during times of very difficulty, we have our little, you know, we, we, we do things like we, we, we eat, like you know, just eat junk food. Maybe that will make us feel better. Or we watch TV and just binge watch everything and just ignore everything that's going on around us. Well, there is something that is on the surface seem possible, profitable, or maybe some things are useless. If it is not God that you're going to, it is not going to be lasting comfort. It's not surprising to make the connection as, this, as our society continues to become more and more secular, that there's an increased dependency on things like medication or therapy for those who are struggling with depression and, str and just struggling with life in general. And why is that? Is because 
Without God's protection and care, a person must constantly build and rebuild their security. It is building your trust on sand instead of a solid rock as in the Lord. The world is going to not know how to deal with the struggles in life, but it should not be the case for the Christian. In your struggle, cry to God. Notice this is to God who accomplishes all things for me. God is described here as one who's working out all the details in, in, in David's life. This means that David understands that all that he's going through, all the suffering from his anointing by Samuel earlier on in his life to fighting Goliath all the way to the current situation where he was hiding in a cave, this is all part of God's divine decree. God placed him there at the exact moment and David is not, David is not where he doesn't belong. David is, is there because God wants him to be there. We understand this, or we, we, we know as reformed people that God is sovereign, but you have to really think about that. That means that the very moments that the time that you're in right now, you are here because God wants you to be. I wonder if you ever thought deeply about why you're here on earth in this particular time. It's because God wants you to be. Several years ago, my wife um, once asked me, hey, you want to watch this movie with me? It seemed like it was like a chick flick, but I was like, okay, I'll watch it with you. And um, this is what husbands do. We make sacrifices. We, we live our, with our wives in an understanding way. And sometimes we just have to watch films that on the surface seems weird, but it was, it was actually really artsy and a really good movie. Um, it was about this writer that was, was in Europe. He was engaged and he was discontent with life. He was discontent with the, the his current situation. And he was all, he wished, oh, I wish I could go back and meet my literary heroes and, and talk with them and pick their brain and see what it's like to learn from them. And somewhere along the line in this film, it doesn't explain how he actually does go back in time. He goes back in time, he meets them. He meets like Hemingway and all these other cool writers. And he's like, wow, this is great. And along the way, somehow when he time travel back in time, he meets this lady that is also discontent, uh, but, he's, but she's discontent of uh, being in the past and, and, and the past that the protagonist was thinking was the best. She thought it was like lame and wants to go even further back in time because she thought those inspirations are better. She was hoping to go back to meet her heroes in the past you know, in the, the, in the further past, in the distant past. The, and then at one point, the main character has this epiphany. He realizes that it is a fruitless endeavor because people always think that a different time is better than the one that they are in. He eventually goes back to the present and he's like, okay, yeah, my life is actually not that bad. I think this is how Christians think about their lives, especially when times of, of difficulty. Sometimes Christians think that they wish they were able to live in a different time where where there was less persecution or live in a different time um, altogether because their discontent was with what is going on with them right now. Christians believe falsely that, just like that protagonist in the film, in the beginning of the film, that living in a different time with different people in a different era is so much better than living in the moment. Yet we understand the faithful Christian must realize that we live in this moment because God sees it best for us to do so. We should first and foremost count ourselves unworthy to be called children of God, but doubly so in that we get to represent God at such a time as this. Steve Lawson once said this way, Christian biographies are not written during boring times. You know, if you want to be faithful, you want to honor the Lord, sometimes the things that's going to be most memorable is, is enduring faithfulness in times of great difficulty. We must always trust that God has placed us here in these interesting times to represent him. We lean on the sovereignty of God. Verse three, he'll send from heaven and save me. He reproaches him who tramples upon me. 
This line is fascinating because David doesn't specify how God is going to do this. He just knows that God will do something. He will know, I mean, you will know that David said, he, uh, you notice he said he, uh, he reproaches him. This is this is the idea of putting to saint, putting the enemy to shame, you know, to put some reproaches like, you know, in verse Timothy said, uh, it will have to be above reproach. I mean, see, there's no shame in him. But David here is saying that God will put reproach on those who tramples over him. So David, he doesn't know how, but somehow God is going to uh, fix all this. God is somehow, some way, and at some point in time, going to bring shame to those that are against God. How? David doesn't know. He just trusts that it will that will be that way. He trusts that God will, will make things right. He knows every little detail and everything will be fine. What a trust does David have in this Lord? It's just it's humbling for me when I read this. Like, wow, he he just he gets it. He knows that they were only refuge in the Lord. And you need to trust God. And that means every little detail, every uncomfortable moment in your life, he just leans and trusts in the Lord. I believe he has such assurance because you know David had to deal with Goliath at one point. Remember that. Goliath was going against Israel in war. He just, and Goliath was just insulting Israel. And more importantly, he was insulting God. He was, just, he was dishonoring him. And David, little shepherd boy, shepherd boy with his pretty face and red curly hair, comes out and, and he's like, oh, why, aren't, why isn't anyone stopping this guy? Why is not why is this guy just still talking and insulting the Lord? And he goes, and you remember Saul, hey, you need some armor and gear. And even his brothers were making fun do something else. Leave. This is this is for men. You're just a little boy. Go away. Um, but he tried. He did. He he saw what was what David what Goliath was doing. He was the only one that was willing to man up for God. He went. And he, and we know the rest of the story. And the point is that you cannot insult God and expect to get away with it. These people here were insulting David, and they thought they could get away with it. But in actuality, there is going to be an end for them. Whenever God's people are insulted, it's actually an insult against God. And David knows that God will eventually act. David doesn't know how. David doesn't know when. But he knows God won't let him down because all the enemies will bow. The same God that David trusts in is the same God that you and I can trust in today. We don't know how God is going to go about this. We don't know how God's going to resolve everything, but we know that God won't let us down because all of his enemies will bow. God will and notice this, that God will send forth his loving kindness and his truth at the end of verse three. Well, there's Selah here, and then God will send forth his loving kindness and his truth. David, trust in God is found in his trust for God's covenant kindness, his love and kindness and God's truth. This phrase often used in Psalm to describe a protective or restorative uh, function here. God, David trusts in God. David knows definitively that God will not let him down. Only God can give lasting protection. Even if it means a person loses their life, they are still protected because a Christian's life is not based on just this moment and here on earth, but it's an eternal life. There's an inheritance that we have in glory for us because of the covenant love that God has made with his people. God is not a liar. And while when he said that he will not leave us or forsake us, he means it. We may lose all that in this life, but we will never lose what matters most, and that is eternal life. Some of you are probably thinking, that's it? Like some, you're looking, it's like, that's all that we need in light of trial, especially persecution, just trust God. Doesn't the Bible have anything else that we can do in, in light of this and make life easier? Modern Christians tend to have this theology that is centered around being comfortable that God wants them to be 
comfortable and with ease. In fact, this is quite the opposite of what God actually expects from those that follow him. Jesus said that persecution will come and they will do it because they hate Jesus. We think that God must deliver us from physical pain at all costs. At best, this type of thinking may, lead, may, may eventually make you lose trust in God. At worst, this type of thinking will lead a person to, to leave the faith altogether. Christians are called to a life of suffering and discomfort, but not just that we but, but not just that, that we will be rewarded by God for identifying with Christ in our suffering. He suffered on our behalf so that we will not suffer eternal judgment. We will have to suffer for the gospel. We are living among those that hate God. Look back at verse four. Look at how David responds. My soul is among lions. I must lie among those who breathe forth fire, even the sons of men whose teeth are spears and sharp arrows and their tongue, oh, sorry, spears and arrows and their tongue, a sharp sword. This is a way that David describes his enemy. They're trying to pursue him. They are like lions. It means that they're powerful. They, they breathe forth fire. That doesn't mean that he's being chased by some dragon that shoots fire out. No, but this is just this is just a metaphor described that the, the enemy's words are like a consuming fire. You'll notice uh, that in verse four, though, he said that I must lie among those who breathe fire. This is his confidence that he, ha he that he has. David depends on the Lord for, for, for protection, and he's confident that even if he lies down among those who want to kill him and those who want to consume him, the way that a fire consumes this object, he is secured. He doesn't worry about that. He's saying, I, will, I don't mind staying, laying down next to the enemy and sleeping right next to them because he trusts in God's protection. There's even the sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows and their tongues a sharp sword. There's a lot of focus here on the tongue and the mouth of the adversary. David uses this picture to describe the weapons that they are using. The teeth and tongues refer to what they say um, and not, and, and not to any um, literal biting and devouring. I don't think David's enemy or Saul was like a cannibal. It's not, that's not what he's saying here. This is, an, again, a metaphor to show that the, the people, the enemies of God, use words to attack him. We understand that the scripture tells us how we need to conduct the way that we speak. In fact, Leviticus 19, verse 16 says this, you shall not go about as a slanderer among people and you're not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am Yahweh. The idea is that if you speak, if you slander someone, that's just as bad as trying to take their life. Scripture commands us to put away slander speech. First Peter 2, verse 1, slanders slander because they hate God. Those that slander doesn't understand that their words are against and the ones that they use against one another, it's against someone that's made in the image of God. How a person speaks against someone offends God greatly because it diminishes the value of the individual. Words don't cause physical pain, we get that. Like it's not like when someone makes fun of you also there's like cuts in your face, uh, but we know that because it doesn't have physical pain that, it, that, you know, that still hurts us internally. But remember back in verse three, that what gives David assurance is, is the words of the Lord, is God's truth. God's word shields us from painful darts of this world. The world will lie against us, but God knows, and what, he's, and, he, and what he says about us is true, that we belong to him. Oftentimes, I think Christians are so desperate to, to fix their own reputation out of fear of man or, or to be accepted by man. We want cultural approval, so we do all that we can to protect our own reputation. 
But if our identity is fixed in a covenant relationship with God, then it doesn't matter how the world perceives us because we have our chief identity in the Lord. There are many churches, many pastors, many Christians out of sake of cultural acceptance would deny biblical truth so that they can be accepted by the world. Even though it hurts, David's chief hope and identity is in the Lord. And that should be our attitude toward those who slander against us, that we don't care what they say about us because those things aren't true. What God, how God describes us as being children, his kids, that's what matters most. No matter what lies are thrown at us, we cling to the truth that's revealed in scripture about us. Verse five, be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above all the earth. There's a break here from the rest, uh, from here from focusing on the enemies and now he's focusing on the Lord. He wants God's name to be exalted. He, he wants to exalt God and thinks about God. He's praying to God for God to be exalted in light of his suffering. In fact, this word be exalted is his, it's, it's, it's his command almost. He's, he's, he's praying that God will reveal himself to the world. He wants God's majesty, his glory to be, made, to be made known throughout the world. Let your glory be above all the earth. That's what it says here in the word glorious to describe the very nature and essence of God. It refers to his importance, his prominence, his supremacy over all things. David is saying that he wants God to act in such a way that God will, God will, exalt, will be exalted in the heavens and make a lasting impression on those under the heaven mainly the earth and the people living on earth. So what David is saying in these first five verses that he wants God to defeat his enemies so that God will be made known. He wants his suffering to end, not because he cares about his own comfort, rather he wants God to act so that God's name will be made known throughout the whole world. He wants everyone to know him and worship him. Is this how you think about suffering in your own life? Never mind for a second about persecution, which may be the highest form of suffering for the Christian, but just about the small things in your life, in any type of suffering that you go through in this life, is your desire for God to be made known. If you can't handle the small sufferings now, then greater suffering will only cause you to deny and, and, uh, and to leave the faith. It only cause you to compromise. If any type of suffering that you go through in this life is your desire to be made God known. If you can't handle the small suffering, then greater suffering will only lead to apostasy. You have a hard time thinking about God's glory in light of light suffering. You have an even harder time thinking about God's glory in greater sufferings. But how does one get to what David is at? How does it get to this point? What does David do? What did he do? He fixed his gaze on something that is beyond the immediate circumstance. And we need to fix our gaze on something that's beyond the current moment. We need to train our minds now while things are still relatively easy to think of something that is beyond ourselves. If you ever wonder how a firefighter is willing to throw themselves into a burning building to save lives or to go into an area where everything's burning uh, to stop the fire, what drives them isn't a paycheck. It, it isn't because of fame from stopping the flame. Eventually, the fame and the money won't be worth it. Those motives, money and fame, will, are fickle and will not inspire lasting courage. Or if you ever wonder a, a soldier during a time of war, what keeps them from deserting or defecting to the other nation or what, 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 what drives them to keep fighting, 
it's not the college tuition that they can that they get once they return home. It isn't for the adventure or, or, or travel or seeing the world. Those motives are fickle and will not inspire courage. Or if you think about a doctor nowadays who chooses to go into the hospital to work in light of all the things that's going on with COVID, what inspires courage is not the money that they make or be known down the line in history as a hero. So they, they, uh, so they put their life online for it. Those motives are fickle and will not inspire lasting courage. What a firefighter, a soldier, and a doctor all have in common is what drives what they all have in order to press on to endure difficult circumstances is a motivation that is beyond the immediate moment. It's something that transcends the current circumstance. It is knowing that what they do by putting themselves on the line is going to benefit others at the moment and even beyond that moment. It is for the safety and love for other people and the protection that they're willing to continue. It's a mindset of knowing that what they do will impact not just this generation, but generations after. That is a type of motivation that inspires enduring courage because they're looking at something beyond the immediate moment. So ask yourself as a Christian, what is our greatest motivation in this life? If our motive as a Christian is to stay comfortable, that will not invoke lasting courage to be a Christian when life gets uncomfortable. If our motive in life as a Christian is to have friends, that will not provoke lasting courage to be a Christian the moment we are abandoned by those Christians. If our motive as a Christian is to fit into the world, that will not summon lasting courage to be a Christian the moment the world doesn't include us in it. What, what must be our greatest motive is that we want God to be made known. How we can stay motivated to do all the things for God's glory in light of suffering is that we want God to be made known. We want him to be exalted. Others may want to see how we respond to suffering and how we respond will point people to God and because we show them there is something greater that they can trust in. Think about all the non-believers that are watching you suffering now and, the, and those that will watch you suffer down the line. If you're motivated simply by the absence of pain, then you are no different than the non-believer. But if in light of your sufferings, you set your hopes on God and him being made known, that will inspire faithfulness, courage, and endurance in times of difficulty. You listen to a sermon. It isn't simply to consume something so you have to talk about with your friends fill time. This is not merely something that you stream for the sake of your amusement. You have to see this as training yourself to see the greatness of God. Each sermon that you listen to is designed for you to know God, for you to equip to, to know how to tell others about this God. And as you increase your knowledge of God, you will, you will then have your affections changed to love God more. And as you love God more, you can't help but want others to know and love him as well. Knowing more of God through God's word will change you in a fundamental level. The way that you think about life and the way you think about suffering in life will change as you grasp more of who he is in his word. Knowing God and wanting others to know God will inspire lasting courage that will keep you in, to endure in times of persecution. This is how David did it. And this is how we can do it as well. We need to constantly depend on the Lord. As we continue to depend on him, we implore and beg the Lord to act in such a way that through our sufferings, other people will know him. 
This is the same cry as our Savior that during the garden, he was sweating blood. And he said, if there's another way, if there's another way that he can, that he doesn't have to do this, let that come to pass. But if there isn't, he's willing to go through it because not his will, but the Father's will be done. The God that placed us in the trial will give us the grace to endure the trial. You and I must always remember God's sovereign and good hand in light of trials, trials, but also trust in God's sovereign and good hand to hold us and bring us through the trial. If this is a means by which God is made known, then we must welcome suffering with joy. The Christians can learn from David's faithfulness. He depends on God when people want him dead physically or they want to ruin his life or ruin his reputation. No matter how bad things get for the believer, depend on God. David's chief concern is that God be made known. David here does just that. He wants God's glory to be made known above all things in this, in this, in, on this earth. So until that time comes, he continues to depend on God. And may we do that as well during times of great suffering. Well, it seems like it's getting a little late, so I'm going to actually finish the last several verses next week. Uh, I'll just do a part two of this, um, and that's going to be on, on just praising the Lord uh, in, so that we can worship him and give him glory in light of our current circumstances. So let me close our time in prayer. Father God, thank you for your word. As we just look at these short five verses, we, may we be inspired um, to, have, to look to the things we look beyond our present moment, that we think clearly and biblically about the eternal things and how you will be made known, that every knee will bow. That we, Lord, we ask that in light of our per current suffering that we may be going through, whether it is something small or huge, whatever, uh, whatever how weighty it is in our life, we know that we could trust it to you, that you will lift our burdens, that we'd hide under your wings, that we could depend on you each and every single day. Lord, we want you to be made known. We want you to be made known in the church, um, and we want you to be made known outside the church. If it's in the church, may we encourage one another to not, to not, be, to not waver in our faith, but to continue to point each other to your word and, and, and grow in our affections for you. And for those outside the church, may we be bold and courageous to tell people of the sufferings that you've endured so that others can come to saving faith. Lord, we want to have the eternal perspective in this moment because we know this life is short and, and we want to make it count, Lord, for your glory. Thank you in your son's precious name. Amen. Some quick announcements. Um, this Sunday, after, if you're going to go attend in-person service, Zach and I are going to do some evangelism. Just find us afterwards. We're going to just go, and we'll probably go from after the service until maybe 2 o'clock. Um, we'll see how long the conversation goes. So if you're able to come, that would be cool. If not, that's okay. Just pray for us. Pray that the God will give opportunities. I know it's, like, awkward because we can't even hand out gospel tracts. They might think it's, like, laced with COVID or whatever. But just hope that at least the conversations will go well, that we're able to uh, be bold and courageous and speak clearly of the things of the Lord. Um, if you're going to be there on Sunday, if you want to come, just just find either Zach or myself, and we'll, you know, we can do it together. Um, yeah, that's really the main announcement to have in my mind right now. That if there's anything else, Adam, you guys can help fill you in. Um, with that, then um, I'll just pass it on.